Pray with me, please. Father, it is good to be in your house, to sing praises to your name, and to hear words from your word. Lord, I pray that, that our hearts will be open today and that we will listen very carefully to what Phil has to say and we'll be able to apply it to our lives so that we will walk away from here filled with your word and blessed. Thank you for today, Lord, and for your presence here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Those that have been around Libby Christian Church for a long time have heard me teach this before. But if you're new to the church, maybe even new to studying the Bible, here is a study technique that will help you out. It's just very simple, very easy. So if you're new to studying the Bible, new to your faith, try this. Read the books of Genesis and Revelation often. That's where you'll find God. Spend time in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's where you'll find Jesus. Read the Psalms every day. It'll help with your devotional life. And spend time in the book of Proverbs. That's where wisdom is found. Then read the book of Acts. It'll make you want to do something. And you'll see why that applies so wonderfully as we get into Acts chapter 6 and 7 this morning. So that's where we're going to be. Keep turning if you're not there yet. But as you're on your way, let me give you just a, a little bit of a foundational understanding of something that comes directly out of the Bible. Scripturally, biblically, there are two words for crown. Crown, like you would wear on your head. Two words for crown. The first one, diadema. Now, diadema at the heart of it simply means a royal crown. From that word, we get our English word, diadem. Now that's the first word that you will find in the Bible where crown is described in the English language. The second word is Stephanos. And at the heart of it, Stephanos simply means the victor's crown. From the root word Stephanos, we get the English name, this won't surprise you, Stephen. There is a difference between these two crowns. And try as I might, I can't say it or describe it any better than Warren Wiersbe does. Take a look at this. You can inherit a diadema, but the only way to get a Stephanos is to earn it. That's pretty good. I want you to look at that again. Just look at it. Let your eyes rest on it. Let your heart rest on it. There is great teaching in it. You can inherit a diadema. But the only way to get a Stephanos is to earn it. Now I want to show you a man that earned it. It just happens that his name matches what he earned. We're in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neg neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. 
And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Now, you have to understand what's happening in this passage if you're going to gain the greatest wisdom you can from it, if you're really going to mine out all of the teaching. So this is it. After Peter preached at Pentecost, a number of people from distant lands had come to Jerusalem during that time. They came to celebrate Pentecost. They heard Peter preach, and they didn't go home. They stayed in Jerusalem. They just stayed in Jerusalem. Nothing wrong with that. They wanted to be near to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to be at the center of the new church. So they just stayed. They left their homes, their jobs. They left everything they knew. The apostles then had to find a place for them to live. They had to figure out how to feed them. They had to try to find work for them. And so they were doing all of this themselves. That's what was going on. Now, here we are three or four years after Pentecost, and all these people are still in Jerusalem. They're still looking to the apostles to meet all of their needs. And it isn't surprising that some grumbling started to rise up. So you had the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking proselyte Jews from distant lands that had come into the area. They started to complain against the Hebraic Jews, the widows in particular, in both of these groups. Because as the apostles were fixing meals and setting up tables and taking care of everyone's practical needs, the Greek-speaking Jews, those from the distant lands, began to believe that those that were Hebraic by birth, that had grown up in that land, that had grown up right around Jerusalem, they were getting more food than those that came from the other places. So they started grumbling. They started complaining. Hard to imagine that grumbling and complaining can make it into a church, isn't it? It's just, it's shocking to imagine that. Well, let me remind you that churches are made up of people. I think Rick Warren is the one who said this, but a whole lot of people have, have claimed it as their own sense. If you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, you'll run it. That's, that's just pretty good wisdom. Churches aren't perfect. They're made up of people. And the first church, the early church, was just like that. This is the first record of complaints happening within the church. But there have been many since. Because when you put more than two people together, conflict will rise up. So the apostles very wisely went to work on this issue they determined that they were going to settle the problem, and they did it with immense wisdom, that wisdom coming directly from God. Now, if you're paying attention, you saw how they worked their way through it. The first step of it is really quite dramatic. They stepped back, took a look at the issue, and said, we're the ones to blame. That's really what the apostles said. We're the ones to blame. We are spread way too thin. 
We are trying to focus on teaching. We are trying to focus on preaching. We are trying to focus on the Lord's Supper. And at the same time, we are setting up tables. We're preparing meals. We're trying to find housing. We're trying to find employment. We're trying to do all these different things. And that isn't right. We're the ones that are at blame. And so then, in God-given wisdom, they said, we've got to spread this out. We have got to let some other people get involved. And that's exactly what they did. They chose these seven men from among them, known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and they turned the job over to them. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful how they pulled this off. Now, interestingly enough, in the study of leadership, what you will find out is that prior to this, when there were problems in organizations that had grown this large, the answer was slavery. Just force other people to do what you don't want to do. That was the answer. This passage of Scripture has become the basis for a ton of leadership training since it happened in the first century. That's how powerful this is. We started making a move away from slavery into the utilization of gifts and talents of other people and spreading things out. Rather than slavery and conscripted work, now all of a sudden we see people that are getting to thrive in the ways that God has blessed them and the ways that God has gifted them. Oh, a whole lot of leadership training has come right from Acts chapter 6. Now, if you're paying really close attention, you will recognize early on in what we just read that what the apostles are trying to solve is a Jewish problem. The Hellenist, the Greek-speaking Jews, people that had converted to Judaism from these distant lands, were upset with the Hebraic Jews, those that were born in the area. So this is actually a Jewish problem. Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. I want you to see what happens. This is a remarkable part of what we just read. It's found in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now that's the way of God. When we solve things with God's wisdom, the church grows. When we solve things the way God would have them solved, when leaders do that in the church, the church grows. By the way, we have a privilege at Libby Christian Church of having godly men that are overseeing this church, the elders of this church, and they believe in the principles of Acts chapter 6. Let's spread things out into our ministry leaders and our ministry systems and let them do what they are supposed to do. And when problems arise, we will seek the wisdom of God. They will say that. They will seek the wisdom of God and they'll bring about the right answers. One of the great privileges of serving and living under an eldership like that is you can trust that when they go to work praying on something and God gives the answer, that it came directly from the Lord. I appreciate that about our leaders. They do the same thing, and the church grows because of it. But remember, the problem in Acts chapter 6 wasn't just a church problem. It could be refined more than that. It was a Jewish problem. And the way the apostles solved it, well, this is the direct result. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Jewish priests. Those that served around the temple. If you have a study Bible in your hands, go down to your footnotes. See if it says anything about how many priests there were. 
Scholars and teachers will tell you, and many of the editors of those footnotes will tell you, that it is estimated that there were roughly, during that time in the book of Acts, 8,000 priests. 8,000 priests assigned to the temple service. The Bible doesn't tell us how many of them became believers. It simply says a great number. Now, why would that be? Because these people that were serving in a Jewish area around the temple that were Jewish either by birth or by proselytized faith, they were watching, they were leaders, but they were watching what other leaders did, paying close attention to a Jewish problem. The Greek-speaking Jews were upset with the Aramaic, the Hebraic Jews. How are you going to solve this problem for our people? We want to see what you've come up with. You can imagine what it looked like. Posture just like this. Yeah, let's see what you boys got now. <laughs> Been pretty easy for you last three, four years. Let's see it. And then all they could do is go, that's what you came up with? How'd that happen? When they hear about what God did for them, and how the Holy Spirit solved the problem, they became believers. A great number of the 8,000 priests became believers. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I think a lot of that had to do with the seven men that were chosen and the way they picked up the task that was put in front of them. One in particular, the guy who leads out that list of seven, is quite intriguing. But by the way, don't overlook any of these seven men. Don't overlook any of them because they are directly responsible for this rapid growth in the kingdom of God as well, this exponential growth. So we can't say that just one or two of them rose to the top. All seven of them were a part of what we just read about, the growth not only through the Gentiles that lived in the land, but the Jews that lived there as well. But one, one captures my attention today. Here he is again. And what they said, this is verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Let's spend the rest of our time really looking at Stephen. Boy, he bears paying attention to. The next two chapters of the Bible are given to Stephen's story, and it is a remarkable one. It truly is. It begins with one word, just one word that kind of captures the whole essence of Stephen. That word, fullness, fullness. Now you heard how the Bible started out with him. Listen again. What they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Fullness captures who Stephen is. As you go on through Acts chapter 6 and 7, you find out that he is full of more than just the Holy Spirit and of faith. In fact, here's a list of things that define fullness within him. Faith, wisdom, the Holy Spirit, and I put times two on that because it will be mentioned twice in the story of Stephen, the Holy Spirit will be, grace and power. He was full of all five of those things. And he knew how to use them. Knew how to use all of that very, very well. So Stephen, because he was full of all of these things, particularly the Holy Spirit, kind of rose to the top 
very quickly as a leader among those seven. And I want you to see what happens next. So join me back in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses Moses delivered to us, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen started to preach. What began in the, the service of these widows quickly moved to Stephen preaching. And that sermon message that he was bringing was coming directly from the Holy Spirit. He had the words that he needed when he needed them. By the way, when you see the end result of that, the people that would come and, and attack him, it's almost as if Stephen is the living epitome of what Jesus was teaching in Luke chapter 20, or Luke 21, when he says, starting in verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." Now, Jesus is talking about a time for the apostles when they're going to be falsely accused. They might even be imprisoned. They're going to be put on trial. Kind of sounds familiar for what's going on with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel. He's been brought before the council. And now, simply because he was sharing the message of grace, he has to defend it. He has to defend it. And he defended it in ways that no one could argue with. You ever found yourself thinking, I don't know what I would ever do if somebody really questioned my faith. I don't know what I would do or where the words would come from if I ever got put on the spot and had to answer for my belief. Anybody ever been there where you've really thought, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have the words. I don't know that I'd be able to pull it off. Well, you pay close attention to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. Don't spend too much time worrying about that. Because when you need those words, the Holy Spirit will give them to you. That's His job. That's not yours. So you walk in match step with the Spirit. And when you need His power and His presence, it will be there. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't study the Word of God. Not at all. You ought to be in the Word of God every day absorbing as much as you possibly can. But when you think, I just can't remember it, and I know a lot of you feel that way, you'll say to me, I can't memorize scripture, I'm just no good at it. When you need it, 
God will bring it back. The Lord will give it to you. That's a promise from Jesus. So if you ever find yourself in that situation, rest easy, boldly, and confidently, knowing that the Holy Spirit will be there to give you the words that you need. You walk in match step with the Spirit and immerse yourself in His Word. And when you need it, it'll be there. Isn't that comforting? Doesn't that take a load off? Just knowing that if I'm ever faced with that, the Lord's going to give it to me. By the way, that's one of the depths of grace that we seldom explore but often should. When we need something from the Lord, He'll give it to us. We don't have it before that moment. He gives it to us when we need it. I love that. It helps us not worry. It helps relieve anxiety. God will give me what I need when I need it. And I trust the Spirit to do it. So trust the Spirit. Even in the realm of words and wisdom, trust the Spirit. Well, as you move on in Stephen's story back in Acts chapter 6, actually moving on to chapter 7, you can hear the message that he brings to these people that are accusing him falsely, these witnesses that are lying about him. But before you read his words, pay close attention to his face. I like this. Verse 15 of chapter 6. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His countenance was at peace. You're bringing false accusations against me. You're lying about me. All right, whatever. God's given me the words. His face was at peace. He was reflecting the glory of the Lord. Which, by the way, for all of these Jewish people that were looking at him, that was a subtle, nonverbal communication from God because they have known for a long time that the glory of the Lord resided with them. And now they're looking at Stephen's face and they're seeing it. Just like they saw with Moses. His face was like that of an angel reflecting the glory of the Lord. He had their attention. He had their attention. Countenance matters, by the way. So pay attention to yours at times. If you have a face that's unfriendly and you wonder why it is that no one approaches you, it might be your countenance. See what you can do about that. Let it reflect the glory of the Lord. If you look angry all the time and people mention that, well, pay attention to that. Ask the Lord to change your face, change your countenance. You can apply any number of things with that. In this particular case, Stephen was reflecting the glory of the Lord. And from there, he preached. Oh boy, did he preach. For the sake of time, I'm not going to walk you through the first 53 verses of his message. But let me just sum it up for you, because it's powerful. It is powerful. For us as Gentiles, there's a trap of reading Stephen's message and believing that it only applies to the Jews. It doesn't. It applies to us as well. You can plug yourself in to what he has to say. He starts out by reminding his Jewish audience of their heritage. And he does it in a way that they cannot miss. He starts with Abraham. And then he quickly moves right on into Joseph. And then he talks about Moses. And then he talks about Joshua. And then he talks about David. And then he talks about Solomon. He reminds them who they are and where they've come from. He just reminds them of their heritage. Second point in his message, though, is a little more penetrating. 
because he reminds them that they have forsaken their heritage. You were raised this way. You were raised to believe in God. You were raised hearing about the coming Messiah, and you have not listened. That was point number two. When I say that we can apply that to ourselves as Gentiles, I hear this all the time. I know some of you do as well. You'll hear this from somebody that's really struggling and you know as well as they know that they have been distant from God for a long time. They'll say, well, I was raised in the church. I went with my mom all the time. Our mom and dad always had us in church and Sunday school. Our grandma and grandpa always took us. They have a faith heritage that they have walked away from. Same exact thing that Stephen is pointing out to these that are bringing false accusation against him and ultimately against God. He says, remember your heritage and remember how far you have moved away from it. Then he goes on to say this, the Lord has sent you at least two different times. He has sent to you deliverers and you haven't paid attention. He delivered you as a people. He pulled you out of trouble. And you haven't paid attention. You have ignored what God has done. Now let's apply that to ourselves. Same thing happens when people pray, asking God for deliverance and salvation, and God responds, and they ignore it. They don't pay attention to it. You receive what you want from the Lord, and within two or three minutes, you have just said, whew, thank you, and moved on. And maybe that thank you never even comes. You have forgotten how God has sustained and delivered you. So then, as if that is not enough, Stephen goes on to say, The Lord gave you the law, and it was given to you as Jewish people, and you have refused, you have refused to live underneath the protection of that law. Oh, he just lays it out for them. You had it. You had the law right here, and you would not live underneath it. How many times can that be said for us with grace? We were given grace, and we don't live underneath it. We choose not to see the depth of it, and so we live different than we should. Oh boy, what he says to these folks standing in front of him, he says to us. He goes on to tell them that you even had the temple, this place that you could come to, and, and you didn't honor it the way you should. Well, as New Testament believers, your body is the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit resides within you as the presence of the Lord resided in the temple. And we ignore what we have in the very presence of God. But then at the end of this message, oh, Stephen drives it home. He drives it home. You've got to see this for yourself. I'm in chapter 7 now, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. <laughs> he, he doesn't have them on the ropes. This is, a, this is a complete and total knockout. They're down. They are down. And they have no argument. They have nothing left. Nothing left. By the way, the way he starts out that last part, 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and heart and ears, oh man, he just spoke to their Jewishness. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now he said something to them with dramatic, drastic consequences. We'll come back to that. But before we do, let me show you what happens next. They are left with no recourse. So this is what happens in Stephen's life. And this is really where I wanted us to get to today. So pay close attention. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, fullness, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now there's a lot that we can pull out of that passage. There's just two things that I want us to spend the remainder of our time looking at. We'll start with the second one first. This is verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. They were throwing stones at him, physical stones. These weren't just verbal stones, these physical stones, big ones, big ones. They were throwing them at him with the sole purpose of taking his life. And they were successful, brutal way to die. Every hit causing immense pain. Some that'll hit your legs, your knees, your arms, your chest, your stomach. Then there's the blows to the head. That's how Stephen died. But before he did, did you catch his prayer? Did you catch his prayer? If you didn't, listen again. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Sound familiar to you? Sounds like a prayer Jesus would offer from the cross. It also sounds like a prayer that he would teach and the entire New Testament would encourage a prayer of forgiveness for those that are throwing stones at us. It is one of the most difficult teachings of the New Testament for us to embrace. It's easy for us to hear, but embracing it is extremely hard. There are places where Jesus just wants to make sure we pay attention to it. And he, does, or he teaches it in such powerful ways that we can't miss it. Like this in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, you'll, you'll be familiar with these words too. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, we like those words. We quote those words a lot. They're, they're comforting to us. That's like biscuits and gravy for the soul, right there. That's, that's comfort food for the soul. But do you know what the very next words are? Still in the same section? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
That's the teaching that comes right on the, the tail end of the Lord's Prayer, that comforting passage. It's not the only place that it's taught in Scripture. Find it again in, in spots like this. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. Have faith in God. These are Jesus' words. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now there again, we have biscuits and gravy for the soul. That just sounds great. But right on the heels of it, Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. There's that teaching again. It isn't just from Jesus. Other teachers in the Bible are driving home, backing up what Jesus had to say, like the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3. This starts in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. It's this teaching in Scripture that we find over and over and over again. We have to learn how to forgive, even those that would throw stones at us. And once we figure out that type of a prayer, Lord, forgive them, and we begin to pray prayers of forgiveness, bold prayers of forgiveness, something happens in heaven. Something happens in heaven. Don't believe me. Believe the Bible. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7, passage we just read. Here's the second dramatic thing that I wanted you to see. I'll start in verse 54 again. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Knowing where this whole thing was going, Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. You want to know why that's so, so dramatic? Because the Bible would teach us in Mark chapter 16 that Jesus sits at the right hand. This is Mark 16, verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. The book of Hebrews would teach us the same thing. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But here we are in Acts chapter 7, and Jesus is standing up. Jesus is standing up. Why? Because he's watching Stephen closely. He is paying close attention to what's happening. And this prayer that's on Stephen's lips, that brings Jesus to his feet. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And there's Jesus applauding. Standing ovation. Hey, you got it, Stephen. You got it. You have figured this out. He is our biggest fan. And there are certain things that will bring Jesus to his feet. When we learn how to forgive, and it begins in prayer, Jesus is there applauding it. You got it. You figured this out. You figured this out.
Can you imagine how many times we have recited the Lord's Prayer, but we have harbored bitterness in our heart and Jesus remains seated in heaven? But when we choose to deal with anger and resentment and bitterness, the things that we will carry around with us, we will almost wear them like a badge of honor because this person did this to me or this person did that to me. When we carry those things around and we wear them like that badge and we recite the Lord's Prayer and Jesus remains seated. But when we get to the point where we're willing to say, because it's right on the tail end of the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive them. Then Jesus stands up and says, yes, I hear you. I hear you. Good for you. Good for you. You got it. You got it. The Lord applauds bold prayers like that. The Lord applauds that bold prayer. It brings him to his feet. It brings him to his feet. And amazing things take place as a direct result of it. That's what was happening in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Because of Stephen and his friends, the word of God was spreading and the church was increasing and a great number of the Jews, great number of the Jews, became believers. The priest became believers. Something else happened in his teaching. And I don't want us to leave this too soon. Verse 51 again, chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I'm going to address something that is hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. I wasn't sure I was going to today, but I'm going to address it. This is the third official murder of the Jewish people. The first was John the Baptist, the second was Jesus, and Stephen is the third. The third official one each one carrying its own significance. When they allowed Herod to kill John the Baptist, the Jews allowed that. They didn't step in. They allowed it. That was a sin against God the Father. When they asked Pilate to crucify Jesus, and he did, that was a sin against God the Son. And now, when they kill Stephen, it is a sin against the Holy Spirit. And it is a sin that the Jewish people have yet to recover from. It takes us directly into a teaching that a lot of people wrestle with in Scripture and have a hard time wrapping their minds around, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It comes from places like this, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 51. Matthew chapter 12, no, there is no 51, sorry, 31. Let me get that right. Therefore I tell you, Jesus' words, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will, for be, will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. It is so intriguing, as you study church history and as you study Scripture, that God can handle sins that are leveled against Him as the Father. God can even handle sins that are leveled against his son, against Jesus. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's a a danger zone there. There's a danger zone there. And we have to be careful of it. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, (laughs) 
it carries huge consequences. In the year 70 AD, those consequences fell on the Jewish people when the Romans attacked Jerusalem and they sacked the temple and they sacked all of Jerusalem. And the Jewish people lost their homeland and they didn't get it back until 1948. Those are consequences. The Lord moved on. In our lives, we may have been raised in a heritage of faith. We may know exactly who God is because we had godly parents and grandparents that instilled that, that belief within us. We may very well have forsaken it and moved away and, and gone distant, but we can come back. We can come back. There's always room to come back. But when it comes to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, sins against the Spirit, God takes them real serious. That's a discussion for another time. I just want you to know that Stephen, as he presented this, was teaching it. You be careful. You be careful. What happened is an end result of the Jewish people doing that's not only the consequences that they faced, but in the very next chapter, the gospel will move from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. In chapter 8, the church will be persecuted in the biggest of ways. This is verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. What appeared to be a victory for the Jewish people, the persecution of the church, actually just scattered the church. It took the gospel out into the distant lands and Gentiles became believers as a direct result. And that's how the gospel spread because God said, you have sinned against me and you have sinned against my son, but now you have rejected my spirit. I'm moving on. I am moving on. And God moved on. And we don't ever want to be in that situation. So you guard your heart. And one of the things that you have to guard your heart against is bitterness and anger and resentment towards other people because it closes your heart off. And that's why God would stand and applaud prayers of forgiveness because it opens your heart back up. So guard your heart against those things that the Spirit may work. And when you are able to pray prayers of forgiveness, you just throw a quick eye towards heaven. Maybe, just maybe, you'll see Jesus standing there going, you got it, you got it. You listen close to the answer to your prayers because you'll hear him say, you got it. He applauds prayers like this. He applauds prayers like this. Why don't you stand with me and I'm just gonna leave you with two questions. They're yours to think about and do with Whatever you need to, but think close about them. Who's throwing stones at you today? And what's your prayer for them? Who's throwing stones at you today? And what's your prayer for them? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Stephen's story is so unfamiliar to many, and it is so powerful to all. So I'm grateful for the time that we got to spend with him today. Grateful that he spent time with you and he was full of your spirit. Lord, where he came from, 
what his heritage is, how deep his roots go, that's all speculation. We just meet him right here. And I'm so glad we do. I've known a lot of people that wear the Stephanos crown. They've earned it, just like Stephen did. And I am grateful that your kingdom, your kingdom, is made up of those wearing this type of a crown. Lord, help us all desire the same and help us pray the right prayers and hear your responses. I know, Lord, and I so appreciate that you are aware of the depth that we can fall into when bitterness takes hold. So, Father, thank you for teaching us to not allow that to happen. I pray this morning that we won't. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.